poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of CPG, Coach Brad Wilson. Today's guest is one of my top three favorite humans in the world of poker, the founder of Poker Detox and co-host of the Beyond Poker podcast, Nick Howard. I'm not going to do a lengthy intro for this one because you should already be pretty pumped up to listen But if you aren't, I highly suggest you go back and listen to Nick and I's past conversations, including the Detox Files series, as those shows are some of the most insightful and impactful episodes of CPG ever released. With that said, today Nick and I are going to talk about a wide range of topics, including my deep dive into trying to understand poker at its roots, a dissection of Nick's tweets that I personally found the most interesting and much, much more. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you poker and high-performance coach, podcaster, and leader of human beings, Nick Howard. Nick Howard, how you doing, sir? Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me back. It's always my pleasure. It's been too long. It's been maybe like a year and a half. How long? Galfond. Galfon and Vini Vidi. That's how long. Yeah. So at least 18 months. Mm-hmm. And definitely a lot has changed since then. But I guess we'll unpack that slowly. Sure. Well, we can start by unpacking it one step at a time. What, what, what's been going on these last 18 months? Oh, well, I'm a dad now, for one. So there's that. It's been a huge transition. And I would say that it's kind of gone hand in hand with me stepping back from most of my duties at detox CFP. I guess they just sort of go together in that way. Like I literally couldn't be doing as much as I used to be, but at the same time I had some of the better players from the team step up and take responsibility in officer roles, which was really nice and allowed me to, to delegate a ton. So I feel like that project, the CFP project is sort of where I always hoped it could be without me. And that sort of led into uh, another stage of personal development, which was learning how to not do as much harder than it seems apparently (laughs) for someone like me. Um, (laughs) Yes. I think that was, I feel that it might've been something that we had just touched base on. I don't know, maybe toward the beginning of the year, you had asked me to come on the show and I initially accepted and then I, I had to message you back and be like, I'm just, I'm dealing with too much stuff right now. And it, it wasn't even that I had too much to do. It was, I was just kind of really having a difficult time not doing anything at all. It's very backwards. What do you mean by that? Like not doing anything at all. When you're a high performer or an overachiever type A and choose whatever label you want there, it's, typically the hardest thing to do to stop uh, working out. I I hear this a lot with the metaphor of uh, Olympic athletes. That's why I use that 
that term working out where like they're training, training, training. And the thing that is the hardest to get the Olympic athlete to do is to get them to rest. So I had a, a pretty difficult bout with that initially. There was a couple things attached to it. It's like, I'm not really used to having to depend on anyone. It's kind of like an armor that I had built up along the way, which was probably my advantage. But then when you do delegate and it's time to step back and enjoy the fruits of, you know, building a company, it can pose some, some difficulties for sure. So there was a, a decent amount of development that occurred during that stage, just in terms of trusting and, and releasing off of something that I had become quite attached to. Let's go back a little bit and talk about this kid thing. So where's the kid come from? You just find it on the street. Like how did you become a dad, Nick Howard in the past 18 months? Oh, the baby. I thought you were going to go like super, super psycho psychology on me and ask me where did my inner child come from? <laughs> no, no. The, the <laughs> actual literal child. Yeah. So it was extremely, it was an extremely accelerated, uh, fatherhood, I guess. I met a girl through one of my best friends um, back in September of last year. Just random party, didn't really keep in touch. Definitely liked her, but like we didn't really get a chance to to connect. And then I had another Christmas event where she was there again. We really hit it off. Um, started dating, got pretty serious, got very serious. Um, then I ended up moving to LA for six months in February. I was in Dallas before that. And yeah, we've been together almost a year. She had a one-year-old when I got with her. So the baby is turning two this week. What about, what about her um, was special and led to this, this development, right? Like you, you mentioned hitting it off and spending lots of time together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think it goes back to communications. We were talking about this before we started pressing record. Um, so much of my personal development and the preferences that I've put a lot of value on over the last couple of years have been communicationally oriented. A lot of that came from my own failures, particularly in my last relationship. I talked about this on my own podcast with Elliot Rowe, the Beyond Poker pod. I had a lot of communicational failures with my last ex, some of which were probably repairable and some of which I didn't have any control over. So I kind of spent most of my time in that breakup period uh, repairing my own communicational issues, which basically gravitated towards trying to intellectually logic someone into a better perspective as opposed to being emotionally present for them. Talked to Elliot a lot about the importance of like creating that feeling of safety before having a rational conversation about something. And I was just, that was a blind spot for me. I didn't, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the value of it or really know how to navigate the nuances of that. So can you, can you give a practical example? Sure. So if we were in an argument as a couple and you were clearly doing something irrational, but you were doing it from some sort of uh, anxiety driven state, you know, just something that you hadn't really resolved yet in you, but that I see clearly that, that you're doing incorrectly. Um, instead of just correcting you in a very blunt and direct fashion, 
if I really care about you feeling comfortable enough to receive the feedback, I should probably make sure that there's an emotionally safe energy in the room before I deliver that. Uh, I don't know why I never did that. It was, it was partly because I didn't have the knowledge of how important it was. I had sort of just not validated the emotional kingdom yet at that stage. And then the other half was like, I really just didn't think I had time for it. I didn't, I think those go hand in hand because I didn't value it. I didn't make the time to do it. So bringing it back to my compatibility with my new girlfriend, um, it's twofold. I think she has higher communicational uh, skill sets than any girl I've ever been with. So she has that higher availability to direct feedback to begin with. Um, but she's also just more secure emotionally. So she doesn't really, uh, recoil and project when there's a difficult situation going on. I think that's the thing that, that a, a healthy person should look for in a partner the most is, are they low conflict above anything else? Like, are they, are they interested more in receiving and upgrading or creating drama and conflict around difficult scenarios? And when I saw that in my current girlfriend, I, I was like, very pleased that there was that i was very pleased that i had finally encountered someone with that demeanor um who can be logical and still nurturing <laughs> sorry girls i mean that sounds pretty bad but like up until that point i really didn't have a reference point for a woman who was balanced logically and emotionally you know i had just like had you know nurturing women in my life who i kept feeling like they were failing me on a rational level. So, yeah, I mean, we could go into the, the psychology of whether even that's a grounded opinion and there's certainly things wrong with the way that I just phrased it. But overall, the compatibility aspect, I think, was a product of meeting someone who was both logically and emotionally grounded. I think it, it works both ways, right? Like there are certainly not a small percentage of males that also operate from that same defensive perspective whenever getting feedback that, oh, maybe there's something you're missing here. That's like totally logical from their partner, right? It's always easy to see it when you're not in an emotionally compromised state. I think that when you when emotions are high and you get into defense mode, then it's about making sense of why your emotions are high, which shuts you off from getting feedback or being receptive to hardly any positive feedback. Totally. I've probably said this three times before on other shows, but this quote that I really like is uh, when someone is in that state that you just outlined, it means they're light years away from being reasoned with. I try to hold that in mind when I'm, navigating those spots like that there's time and a place to inject logic and it's usually not now when emotions are high and i think for some practical things that the cpg listener can take away is like gaining awareness of when your emotions are heightened in the first place is like step number one just being aware that like oh i'm about to say or do something that is based on this feeling that i have and maybe i should pause and, you know, reflect before I just go berserk, right? Like it's this awareness that you're angry or you're frustrated or you just whatever, you're in cognitive dissonance, whatever it is. 
Yeah. And if you can only do that, if you can just become someone who has the ability to insert that pause, I think that's like 80% of the, the hard work. I mean, clearly it would be better if you never had any sort of negative emotions that could be triggered in you. Clearly that would be preferable, I guess. But in terms of you being able to behave in a logistically accurate and compassionate way towards the rest of the world, which is really how you get your results when you start to network with leverage and do business with leverage. Um, if you could just handle that part of you, like insert three deep breaths every time that you feel yourself compulsively drawn into action, it's so profound for your results because you just get ahead of all of these neurotic pathways that would self-sabotage you otherwise. And you gain visibility of your own blind spots. Like if you actually think about something without like getting in defense mode, um, you're like, oh, wow, maybe, maybe I can do that better. Like maybe they're operating from a perspective of trying to be beneficial to me instead of judging me. Yeah. There's a, that's a good full circle to close the loop on the whole communications thing. Like when you clearly start to see how a conflict oriented approach has never served you. Even in times where you feel like, oh, I really won that argument. You know, even when you feel like you've won, it actually has never served you because you've either ruined a relationship or you've made yourself look like a you know, contentious asshole. Tell a quick story um, that Pat and I sort of had a laugh at yesterday. I'm at an Airbnb right now for the three months or so. It's been the worst experience ever. I, I guess quick side note. My one Airbnb advice for anybody listening, and this is coming from someone who's used it pretty much as my main uh, rental platform for the better part of a decade. So like I've been around the block. I have never had an experience as bad as the one I'm having right now with a host, mainly in the neglect and communicational department. So let's just say communicational neglect resulting in us like not having hot water for three weeks, not having a dishwasher, stuff like this. My small piece of advice would be never rent on Airbnb unless you're renting from a super host. The Airbnb platform does very little to support you if you ever have problems. Like they'll make sure that you're safe, but they won't enforce basically anything else. They just don't have incentive. And that was something that was new to me. So that's a side note. Always rent from a super host on Airbnb, pay the extra price. It's worth it. So this fucking guy <laughs> has just been giving me like a really hard time about everything up until um, yesterday when all this sort of culminates. They were telling us there was like a roach infestation behind the dishwasher. That was why the dishwasher battery had been like chewed out. So there was an appointment scheduled for Terminex to come and it was scheduled for noon. I woke up at 11.42 yesterday morning. Pat's visiting here for the series. He's my brother, for those of you who don't know. There was a message on my phone from the Airbnb host that says, um, Terminex is outside. I'm manually unlocking the front door for them because you've made such a fuss about this. Which, first of all, is ridiculous because like, to make a fuss about a roach infestation, <laughs> not that outlandish, in my yeah. opinion. So I like walk outside and I'm like, uh, well, it's 1142. This message was sent at 1108 AM. I don't see Terminex. Nobody's in my house. I don't see Pat. So I send a message back that says, uh, what door did you open? And I don't see anyone here. 
He immediately sends a message back. It says, cut the bullshit, Nick. I have video surveillance of you opening the door at 11.15 a.m. Are you denying that this event took place? At that point, it connects in my head. Okay, so Pat must have opened the door. He thinks I'm Pat. And so it's a good example. I, I told Pat after we had a laugh, and it's a good example. Pat tweeted. I'm guessing it was about this. I didn't ask him, but his tweet yesterday said, it's impossible to overstate the lengths to which people who do who distrust the world self-sabotage. It's a pretty good example of what's going on here. This guy has clearly a lot of unresolved shit in his past that would make him think that people are deceiving him always. And so he immediately jumps to conclusions that I'm like denying some event that, that took place as opposed to giving me the benefit of the doubt that there might actually just be another human being in the house that, that opened the door. So it's kind of a, a nuanced example, but I think it, it should make a lot of sense that the faster you jump to conclusions, specifically conclusions around you being deceived, manipulated, the more likely you are to push otherwise kind and compassionate and well-intending people away from you. And this is like the, the essence of self-sabotage. It happens so often in relationships where uh, someone will perceive something as a red flag that's actually a balanced behavior. And because they're not ready to receive that type of uh, kindness from someone, they, they label it as manipulative or deceitful and they, they push them away. Yeah, they put, a, put an agenda to it when there may not be any agenda. Tell me, why, why stay in the same place? Why not get, a, get another Airbnb in the contract? Well, I've done a really nice job of baby-proofing this, this place, which for one takes a lot of time to do correctly. Um, and it's also just like there's three more weeks till the end of the series. I'm barely present right now because I'm playing so much. So for me to like, you know, logistically navigate all of this is just, it's a great idea in my girlfriend's head, but then I have to sort of be the one that connects the dots and it's a pleasant fiction at best that we were, <laughs> that we we're going to be able to move out of here. Well, you know. the, the good news is you're getting lots of volume in because you're not incentivized to stay at your place. So there you go. That's true. That was my compromise. I said, babe, we're not going to, we just won't eat dinner here. We'll, we'll eat out more over the next two weeks and we'll take a trip. Well, I mean, it, it is infested with roaches, so maybe dinner is not the best idea anyway. <laughs> dinner out, Brad. Yeah. Dinner out. Um, all right. So the basis for this conversation, by the way, since the last time you've come on, you know, I, I created a whole template for uh, follow-up conversations for people. I'm going to ignore that because... I like you so much that you know I want to have good reason to invite you back on again uh, after this conversation. You mentioned to me a good idea might be to find some of your past tweets and dive deep into your tweets. And with that said, you want to dive in? Yeah, I thought it could be a good way for us to catch up and kind of find a lot of different entry points. There's this thing that I heard that I wanted to hold myself accountable to, which is that if you can't find things from six months ago that you cringe at, it means you're not growing fast enough as a person. So I'll try to be as honest as possible about stuff that I think still holds true for me and stuff that I wish I never perhaps 
Yeah, said. so my, my second comment here in this uh, Google Doc that I put together, anything you either regret or disagree with upon further reflection? <laughs> that was a, a follow-up question that I was going to have because, I mean, nice. this is the nature of life, right? Like, you should not have an opinion that doesn't change in the face of new information because that is exactly the definition of growth, right? That is what growing is, is looking back on your past self and being like, wow, um, this manifests in private coaching for me, where one of my long-term students, we were talking about a spot and I was describing, you know, how I think about it now. And he's like, wow, like that completely contradicts, you know, we broke down a hand very similar to this, like nine months ago. And now your thoughts and opinions are very different than today. And I'm like, shouldn't, you want that to be the case in a coach that's like, that just means I'm growing and I understand the spot way better than I did nine months ago, right? And I think this is the nature of human beings and this ought to be the paradigm in which we play poker because if it isn't, then best of luck. Totally agree. Walt Whitman has a quote I really like. I forget exactly. I might butcher it. I think it goes, do I contradict myself? Okay, then I contradict myself. I'm large. I contain multitudes. I think it's exactly the type of paradigm that a poker player should should approach the game from. And you know, playing a ton of live at Bellagio, you know, over the last month or so, it's become more apparent to me how hard it is to navigate the slow pace of the game for most players. Like this is a thought I had last night, actually, while playing the, the 10, 20, 40 there with some strong regs in order to keep your sanity in poker, specifically if you're not getting large sample sizes in quickly, uh, you know, which is easier online, but like nearly impossible live. You almost must be holding on to a lot of rigid conclusions about what you know about the game that are probably incorrect just to keep your sanity, just to keep your confidence at the table. Like I've met almost no one who can navigate from that place of total inconclusiveness where you're just comfortable with cognitive dissonance 24-7 while playing for large sums of money. It's extremely hard to do. Extremely hard to stay rational and discerned when you have a significant question mark next to every decision that you're making as to whether or not it's actually incentivized. Um, so I think it's, it almost has to be, it has to be like this, that you sort of rigidify or crystallize into a lot of conclusions and biases about the game that aren't actually true or that wouldn't prove to be true if we had, you know, full vision data analysis over the entire tree, but you do it just because it's the, it's necessary to do it so that you can keep your sanity at the table. Yeah. These sweeping conclusions like they always have it they're never bluffing um they're never folding we should like all of these like absolute statements like i've looked at a lot of data and i have not found one fucking spot where somebody just always have it has it every single time right so like there's a spectrum of the frequencies and yeah the feedback feedback mechanism in live poker is just it's so slow and it's hard to gain visibility of all the spots. So basically what you're trying to do and the way that I think about poker these days, actually, I, I think about poker as a series of maps um, on each street with each decision that you make. There is a map that you 
have constructed or are constructing on the spot through lessons that you've learned in poker, but you're navigating with these maps. And most people, their maps are atrocious, right? Like this is just the reality of the situation. My maps were very flawed when I started gaining visibility from a macro level of what the fuck is happening in poker. They were very flawed and I got to upgrade them, which was very nice. But a map is better than no map in most situations, I think. And what happens, especially with the influx of solvers and folks trying to emulate solvers is they're getting a series of maps and those maps lead them to some measure of success. And they accept that those maps are the gospel when the reality is those maps could be upgraded if that person is available to upgrading them, right? And that's how I think of like the rigidness you described of live poker is like people have these maps, they use them to navigate. Those maps have led them to some measure of success in the live arena. Therefore, they accept that these maps are the gospel without realizing that, oh, wow, these could be upgraded substantially. Yeah, I think it's a very good explanation. <laughs> That's it. The end. I could um, I could elaborate, but I feel like it was well-rounded. And you know, maybe the only thing I would add is that for the most part, often their application of that map isn't even what they think it is. It's just informed by whatever biases they're unaware of. Marinella used to say something like this. I think that like the people who think they're implementing quasi GTO, the people who think that they're actually implementing those solver maps accurately and winning a lot are usually just people who are comfortable investing more money than others. So they tip aggressive, they tip call heavy, which is actually what's incentivized according to the data analysis versus the pools. So their interpretation of what is actually, you know, close to GTO is actually an exploitative blueprint that they are not even really consciously aware that they're applying. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time over this past eight months really reflecting on what poker is, which sounds like a weird thing to say, as somebody that's been a professional for their entire adult life, but like, what is this game, right? Like, what are we doing here at like a basic level? What is poker? And I mean, it's a game of pot odds. I think this is first and foremost and most obvious that somehow people fuck up like routinely is like pot odds exist to incentivize you to call very often and to also make it to where you bluff very often as well, right? It's the way that the game is constructed. So it makes sense that somebody that naturally calls a lot um, and bluffs a lot will just have success because that's how the game is wired. Yeah, it took me a long time to get on board with that. I think I needed to see the data to get on board with that. Like I remember a time where I was preaching that most of the game tree is under bluffed. And I arrived at that conclusion through some sort of intuitive bias that was severely ungrounded. So the data really helps you to get that macro vision over how the pool is operating. And from there, it can really help you to formulate your approach, just your general approach. That's something that I've been uh, advising players to do. I just did it in my execs chat. I mean, I'm coming back to the game after maybe like a year and a half, two years off. I haven't played, you know, a hand in that period of time. I've been sort of, you know, still working in the hand history chats and stuff. And I think I'm relative, relatively sound. But one of the things I just did that I asked the, the rest of the team to do is 
write a paragraph or two describing who you are as a player from a technical lens and really try to hone in on what your strengths and maybe even your weaknesses are, but just more so, where is my edge coming from? Can I actually quantify where my edge exists as a player by noting the different dimensions of the game tree that I attempt to exploit on a regular basis? So I don't really want to give mine away, but I think it's a... I think it's a really useful exercise to be able to gain that macro vision over, okay, like what am I really attempting to do when I sit down to play this session? And it gives you another level of accountability and um, security over your performance. Yeah. I think there's two types of people. And I've thought about this a ton as well, because through private coaching, having discussions, I encounter different perspectives. People approach poker from different places and using different methodologies and find some measure of success from either one. But I think there's two types of people. There's one type of person that focuses entirely on themselves and wants to learn how they can execute strategies that they believe to be resilient, that they believe to be winning. It's just all about them and what they do. This is how I play my range in this situation. This is These are the combos I think I'm supposed to be checking. These are the combos I think I'm supposed to be betting. This is why I'm mixing at this frequency or that frequency. And then there's the other people that approach poker from the perspective of the opponent they're playing against. And think about it from the viewpoint of like, what's my opponent fucking up? And it's really that simple to me. The people that approach it from the second viewpoint of what's my opponent doing wrong that I can take advantage of, like those guys have such an easier path to success in poker than the first guys. Because especially if you have, especially if you're not biased, you have, I guess that's, that's the, the distortion and the biases are what prevent them from having success. But if you look at it objectively and you're like, yeah, I'm going to, change my strategy based on the inefficiencies of my opponents. It's just such a stronger position to be in. Mm. Simpler too. I guess that maybe this could be the only like high level strategy stuff that we talk about, but I'll just give this away. If you haven't realized yet, if you're not following mine or Brad's content or anybody else doing data analysis, the pools are over folding versus aggression. And they're also over bluffing rivers universally throughout the game tree. I have to be careful with this language because now that we're giving these gems away on the poker detox account, I have people constantly ask me, what does universal mean? What does, what do you mean by throughout the game? In aggregate across all flop textures, equity shifting turns and rivers, just in aggregate. Yeah. All lines formations in general are getting over bluffed with exceptions, but you know, a baseline strategy that calls a lot and also attempts to bluff your opponents a lot does quite well. Right. If so, you close your eyes and if you flop middle pair and close your eyes and don't look at the flop turn to river and just keep calling, it's not the end of the world. Right. So this is like typically the type of stuff that detox will get flamed for that this methodology is just not sustainable because like if you're abusing that, you know, it it stands out too much. So that's true. You know, this would work better in a vacuum for you to just like never have history with an opponent and always be able to follow that baseline strategy. But when you do have you know, a developing sample and information exchange, the, the skill set becomes, how do I control these aggressive? How do I control these extro, this exploitative pace? 
in a way that goes somewhat disguised, but allows me to still uh, implement it over time. And we call this resilience. So the true skill set is trying to figure out a methodology that allows you to hit min exploit frequencies so that you can play a stable, you can play within a stable competitive model, never doing anything too crazy that would cause your opponent to make a radical adjustment and continuing to exploit this baseline weakness in the pool. So if you could figure out how to do that, and I guess this is the advice that I'll give that I think is what um, we're going to be able to help a lot of players within the new program, Detox Elite, that, that Pat unrolled on your last show. The way that I like to train for min-exploit systems is to allow the player to just go out and do his own thing for 20,000 hands. Whatever, whatever strategy you want to use to try to achieve these types of baseline frequencies that we're trying to get you to play, go do your thing. For me, that's like pretending that I understand what the solver frequency is in a hand for a certain spot, and then I'll like increase the aggression by a little bit in my head. And then I'll roll a number to hold myself accountable to it. I'm sort of playing this game in my head. I know that I don't actually know the solver output, but I think I can be close in a lot of spots. And then I'll ramp it up a little bit from there because I want to apply this min exploit frame. Go do whatever works for you and try to achieve these min exploit aggressive frequencies. Then dump your sample back to us and we'll show you where you're really at. And that will give you an indication of where your baseline needs to sort of go up or down in terms of how you reapproach the game from there. Everybody's using their own strategies and, um, tools to try to arrive at certain frequencies you know we clearly can't just bluff every hand um, but i think it's the players that really have a good system of accountability for being able to do that and yes blockers are a part of that they should be factored in probably greatly factored so yeah that would be my that'd be my suggestion if you're really looking to get to a high level of exploitative play obviously you need to acknowledge the dimension of time sustainability of the exploitative strategy and then through iterations where you're able to objectively assess your strategy through data analysis over large enough samples, you can see how your approach to trying to nail those frequencies is actually mapping in real time, I guess. You can see how it's mapping over a large sample and then adjust from there. But I really like this idea of iterations of progress. All right. So for... Transparency's sake, me and Nick just talked off the record um, <laughs> about some interesting coaching and strategic stuff that, that we've realized. Um, so I have no idea what we were just talking about. This is a, the worst segue in CPG history uh, after pausing the recording and hopping back in. But it is time to get into the tweets, right? This was the, this was the framing of this podcast episode. So let's dive into some of the tweets that I personally find interesting because it's my fucking show and that's how we roll. All right. Um, so this is one that I meditated on quite a bit. I guess the first question that I have this, the first bullet point is I wonder where, what state of mind you're in with some of your tweets, right? Like what time of the day are you typically tweeting? Are you tweeting from, Clarity, sometimes not so clear. I know you've mentioned that you tweet drunk a lot. So I guess we'll start there. Yeah, I haven't been drinking as much this year, actually. 
um, I think it's a big upgrade. I remember you told me in Atlanta that alcohol really fucks with you. And I think, you know, if I'm being honest, I can be drinking regularly and push through my daily activities, but it, it really messes my sleep up. And I just overall, from like a mindset standpoint, if you're doing the emotional work on a regular basis and processing things in a healthy way, you really shouldn't need it. So yeah, definitely less drinking this year. And I would expect to do next drink, uh, less drinking even, even next year too. But I forget if I put this tweet out, I was talking to Wayne about it. I guess I'll just hijack your first question. Cause you asked, <laughs> I sort of came up with a formula for like how often it makes sense to be getting fucked up on a yearly basis. And I came down to like, I want less than 3% of my year to be affected by drinking. The problem with getting really drunk is not necessarily your behavior for me. Like I've never been somebody who just like blacks out and has a completely absurd behavior. It's just like the hangover is actually chewing up two to three days of your next week. And I think that's something that goes overlooked. So I came up with this quasi optimal strategy with Wayne that we were joking about where like, you know, you pick like two or three events that are really special events over the course of the year. And that's your time to sort of go off and, um, you know, get really drunk and just deal with the repercussions and know that the experiences that you create in those few times a year are going to sort of be worth it. Yeah. So luckily as a 22 year old idiot, I gained the experience of this firsthand when my body has a very low tolerance for alcohol and I also have a very high preference for continuing to drink after I'm way beyond fucked up, which equals four days on the couch of just totally feeling weak and awful and basically my body being poisoned. And I realized quite quickly, that's a bad combination and I don't like this. So I'm going to stop drinking. Um, I don't know how it would have been had I just been able to recover much quickly after a lot of drinking, but th that's never been the case. I am just always totally fucking useless after getting hammered. What type of drunk are you? What type of drunk am I? I'm goofy. I mean, like I, I don't, it's never made sense to me. The angry drunk, like just silly. Like, I think that's just how I am. If I like eat an edible or drink, it's just like, totally fucking silly. The world is just pure silliness and everything is hilarious. That's, that's how I am when I drink. How yeah, are I you? Think that's a, I think that's a reasonable drinking approach. I think most people, yeah, I don't, I don't relate to the angry thing either. I think a lot of that is what was modeled to us though. Like if you had an angry parent as a drunk, an angry drunken parent, you're probably going to take on the angry thing. I drink to relax usually. I think I've used it as a, a tool to self-medicate against anxiety. So, you know, there's that aspect of it, which leads to calmness and just silliness. Like you said, like taking things lightly for sure. But yeah, I think th that's one of the realizations I had this year is like, this is not a good way to mitigate anxiety. There's just way too many. If there wasn't the residual downside of the hangover i think it would make a lot more sense but again iterations like the more iterations you go through of being hung over and the more you have to come to terms with the fact that like this day that i 
had used this drug to mitigate whatever discomfort I was in leads to two more days of discomfort and low productivity. It's just hard to reckon with. Yeah. Or hard to keep rationalizing, I guess is a better way to put it. Yeah. I, I do like, um, state of mind altering things. I think human beings sort of trend in that direction naturally. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I, I heard on a podcast one time that like kids will like spin in circles to get dizzy because they like the way that it feels right. Like, and as adults, I've finally gotten to the point where I trend to like, okay, if I am going to do something that alters my perception, then it's going to be in like the weed arena, some sort of edible, maybe some mushrooms or something like that in an environment that's where I'm, where I'm taking as many precautions and doing it efficiently and optimally, not just doing it, I guess, to go nuts. So weed is your preferred drug? Well, to be fair, I haven't tried all of them. So thus far, thus far weed, um, although I do have some mushrooms that I'm excited to, you know, find me a shaman and go through that experience. I know a few guys who are just low dosing throughout the whole series on like shrooms or acid, like strong players too, that just like use the series for like this low dosing adventure. I couldn't imagine you being friends with weak players that are (laughs) dosing acid throughout the series. (laughs) Totally delusional noobs. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, where were we? I keep hijacking your Twitter threads, but that was one that I'm not sure if I posted, but it's definitely like a a very long journal entry that I wrote that probably took me like a year to compile about why drinking is not as useful as I used to think. Yeah, you, you do keep hijacking. And I don't, I don't even know how long we've been on this, but we haven't read the first tweet yet. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do, one man Coach Brad Wilson. has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R. The first tweet. What if no quote-unquote thing is actually confusing? What if reality is actually very clear and confusion is the felt sense of bias that if you take deep, it leads to an interesting shift in accountability? This is the one that I thought about a lot and... Hmm. I don't remember this one, but okay. I don't like the way I worded it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there were actually some gra- grammatical upgrades <laughs> that I added because you you may have been in a... Drunk? Drunk, yes. You, you may have been drunk because this was from like seven or eight months ago. But I guess, give me your sense. How, how would you word it now if you could reword it? Sure. What I was going for here was the realization that everything that you think is confusing or disturbing or unclear becomes radically simpler when you acknowledge it at the root of the feeling. I guess a quote that would sort of parallel this would be that Einstein quote, problems can't be solved from the same level of consciousness as they arose. Oftentimes what we're doing is we're lunging ahead 
of a problem that is actually an emotional disturbance or cognitive dissonance, I'd say they're sort of one and the same. Something's bothering you. You're attempting to solve it. So you jump into the analytical landscape, completely bypassing the fact that you're thinking about it from a distorted level of consciousness. From that level, you can only reinforce the sense of the problem. There is actually no solution from that level. The first and only solution is to take ownership over the dissonance itself. How am I creating this dissonance? I'm probably doing it by denying myself some sort of support internally, believing that there's some sort of threat that I don't have the capacity to support myself through. So then I dissociate intellectually, which is this. If you're a poker player who's analytical, go down this rabbit hole. Most of the shit that you complicate your life with is an intellectual dissociation. What does that mean? It means you have an emotion that you have not been trained to support or process. And you believe that the way out of that emotion is to go intellectually solve it. Uh, Nietzsche called this the will to power. He wrote a book about it. But typically, if you were trained to believe that the analytical realm intellectual realm is highly valuable, which I think is a paradigm that most high performers would have to say that they're in, you will attempt to conquer emotions through intellectually checkmating them or by solving problems. And this is a great way to perpetuate the level of distortion that those problems stem from. And to simplify a little, we're hardwired to tell stories that make sense of the information that we're interpreting. And whenever you're in an emotional state, right, you're going to, you try to make sense of that emotion without making sense of why you feel that emotion. And oftentimes, you know, in the poker sense, it, it can manifest like in a coaching session where somebody, something happens to a student that is unexpected. They feel an emotion and then they try to make sense of that emotion rationally by saying, well, I think that I would call here if I had the seven of spades, but I have the seven of clubs. So I think I'll fold when what's actually happening is they don't know what's going on and they're trying to make sense of the fear that they're feeling and the confusion. And in order, you know, they, they've already mentally folded. Now they're just coming up with a story to make sense of the fold, right? Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, and this, I think, goes back to why it's so important to start to inject population analysis into your approach strategically. Because a lot of the things that you're telling yourself during a hand, a lot of the data points that you're using to make your decision are just completely arbitrary things that you've picked up along the way that that don't actually map to your incentives. They actually just make you feel more comfortable when you encounter cognitive dissonance. It's just this overlay that you authorize in that moment to make you feel a bit more in control. Again, you're, you're looking for a way to reestablish power. Who's the guy that wrote Fight Club? He put this a slightly different way in Chuck an interview. Polinick. Yeah, yeah. He said, uh, he, he was talking about a short story that he wrote. And the entire premise of this short story was based on the fact that we're all just looking for a way to not feel dominated by life. And mm. I think this is what you get when you, when you have that 
fight or flight response. That's what people are dealing with. Some people default passively, some people default aggressively, but we're all intellectually dissociating in some type of way from that core emotion of feeling powerless. And from that point, all of these different pathways of distortion present themselves. On a practical non-poker level, right? Like it's sometimes biological that it's hormonal, it's cyclical, right? Where like you just feel you have an off day where for whatever reason, you're feeling anxious or you're feeling angry or you're feeling depressed or sad. And it's for no reason other than biological. However, we want to create a story as to why we're feeling sad or depressed. When there is no story, we want to say, oh, this person didn't respond to me after I sent them an email. Maybe it's them that's the problem that's making me feel this way. My wife didn't make dinner last night after I told her she was hungry. So she's the villain in this story. When the reality is you just feel the way you feel and you're trying to come up with some sort of story to make sense of that feeling. And it's a shame too, because there's so much energy wasted on it. Jason Sue's really good at this. I love how he narrates presence and the importance of it. Something he said that pops out to me after what you just said. It really doesn't matter if you, if you feel anxious or fearful. In fact, you're always going to have to deal with those emotions. What matters is whether or not you can create that space where you understand how to relate to them so that you don't lose your discernment power amidst them. Super nuanced point, but like a lot of people who take up like mindset work, they head down this toxic masculine path of like, we're going to repress all negative emotions. Well, that doesn't work because a, a repressed emotion only catapults you into a distortional pathway of thinking. Again, you're intellectually dissociating from something that you haven't taken ownership and acknowledged. The only pathway that can emerge from that is something that's ungrounded and jaded. If you want to put that in scientific terms, how are you supposed to identify accurate data points if you're it's almost like the target that you're aiming at is now moving. You want to understand how hard it is to hit a moving target compared to a target that's standing still. When you are working from an unresolved emotional space, you're basically creating a moving target. I think it's a cool metaphor, actually. I never used that. And just to you know, circle back around, like the reality is if it were so easy to bury your emotions and switch them off, then anytime you got bad news in the world, you could just switch them off like a light switch and not deal with it. But we all know that you just can't fucking do that. And thank God that we are emotional creatures because that's what joy is. That's the, that's what life is made of. These are like the moments that are most valuable to us as human beings are experiencing emotions. And so to try to like switch them off to me, it's just, it's futile. Um, I guess like maybe a sociopath can, but that's probably not something to aspire to. <laughs> Certain people get very good at it. I would say many people are good at repressing the emotion. I don't know what they feel. That's always been something confusing to me. I've personally never been able to fully ignore the emotional landscape. I've been really good at trying to counter it, but it was always there for me. You know, I was, my analytical 
insanity was always driven by a deeply uncomfortable feeling inside. So that was always how I was going about trying to solve the problem. Even the language there is interesting because emotion is not actually a problem. If you label it one, you will encounter the negative side effects of perceiving it in such a way. Yeah. I don't know what other people experience. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I've often felt like I might be just uh, like everything I say mindset wise might be falling on deaf ears often is like, this was something I almost tweeted yesterday on this, on this note. If someone is not suffering deeply, which I think should almost be the first question that a therapist or a performance coach should ask. And if they say, I'm not suffering deeply, the follow-up should be, how frustrated are you? If they don't seem to be frustrated or suffering, there is no real purpose in performance coaching because there's just not enough incentive yet. There's no problem yet. You're satisfied with your current approach and how it feels for you. There's very little we can do until you, specifically with you know, changing perspectives, because we already know how much resistance there is around doing that. If you don't have a catalyst, if you don't have evidence that the way you're going about it is making you miserable or at least frustrated, we don't really have that high of a ceiling. Yeah, I mean, the incentive's just not there, right? And life. But that's not a bad thing either. Of course. There's guys guys that get on coaching calls and I. (laughs) Unless they're totally delusional, like in which case, is that a a problem? If they're like, I'm not feeling any suffering and yet everything I do is futile. If that person, uh, okay, in that case, I, I would say we have to trust that through iterations, that person will create a space for self-accountability to arise naturally at a pace that is reasonable for them. And I think that is one of the natural ways that life teaches it. There's this mounting incentive in the form of emotional dissonance that forms. Are you frustrated yet? Are you suffering yet with your approach? Are you suffering from the futility of your approach yet? If you suffer enough, you become more available to change. So I don't think it's a problem if somebody's not there yet. In fact, it's the, I almost am really satisfied with those coaching consults. You meet somebody, they seem to be interested in coaching. Then you ask them, where's the problem? They're like, oh, I'm actually, you know, really happy throughout my entire day. I don't really feel any dissonance. Okay, we're done. And, <laughs> and, and congratulations. Like there's no value judgment there on whether or not you're delusional. It's like, your experience is working for you right now. You have what you want right now. You don't need performance coaching. But then if they say, but I don't have the results I want, what do you mean? Well, I say, but that's not causing you any real suffering. And then they're sort of just in this weird checkmated position where now they have to double back and say, no, but I am really frustrated by my results. Now maybe we have a thread. People don't really know what they're feeling often. I think, like, like you said, I mean, Everybody's dealing with emotions, but we're very bad at interpreting them. And some of us are better at repressing them than others. So mindset consulting is pretty interesting. And just just communication with people is interesting because the, the conversations that light me up are when someone demonstrates that they have keen awareness over the interpretation of their emotions. There's a lot of potential in those conversations. It's, I think about this from my own life perspective and journey. And I think 
it's interesting how, like, I know as a child, I never let myself feel excited about victories, competition, success. Like, I remember being a kid and being eight years old, playing in um, the Dizzy Dean Little League World Series and having going undefeated all through All-Stars, winning the championship game and feeling relief. Like I remember just everybody's jumping up around me and they're just like pumped. And I'm just like an emotionless robot <laughs> that it just feels relief that we won. Like even afterwards, my mom asked me like, Brad, why, how come you're not celebrating like everybody else? And like, I had no idea how to even deal with those emotions as mm-hmm. an eight-year-old. And I don't know if it's biological, something that I learned as a child, most likely something that I learned, but it's really hard breaking out of that um, and giving yourself the space to be like, yeah, I feel fucking great and I'm going to express that and that's okay. Yeah, I think it has to do with how we learn to deal with stress. And a lot of that is just what's modeled to us. Or I think the biological part, the way that I see it, is certain people call it randomness you can call it chemical when put under performance stress the way that we default i'll use that fight flight framework or freeze which is actually like the new age framework for the third option um maybe we don't have control over that maybe it's maybe that's just built into us which way we're going to default and then the, the journey back to balance is a bit unique depending on what side you tip to. But it all comes down to the response to stress, which way in which you dissociate, the way in which you repress ends up being, ends up dictating your journey back to balance. Yeah. I I feel very fortunate to be constructed in a way that like, if I get pushed down, my immediate response is to fight back. <laughs> like it, I could be losing at something with no hope of winning, maybe a 2% hope, but never give up. Like always fucking fight till the bitter, bitter end. Um, in some ways that served me well. In other ways it has served me fucking atrociously. Um, but in the poker sense, I think it, it served me pretty well. It's probably more resilient paradigm than the passive accepting defeat approach for sure. And in your defense, it probably maps better against the tendencies of the pool in poker to fight back. So props. sure. Thanks. I mean, I didn't earn it. I don't, I don't know that I deserve it. It just, it was a natural, a natural part of me that, you know, you reconcile as you get older, you, there was, there's a tweet. I can't remember who tweeted it, but they said the quote was something along the lines of in your 20s, it's exciting learning things. Mm-hmm. Learning things is so exciting when you're in your 20s. And in your 30s, I think, I think it may have been Nassim Tlaib. In your 30s, it's unlearning things that you took yeah. as certainty that's exciting. And that it just resonates with me so much. Yeah, that's where all the leverage feels like it is. You've learned a lot of shit by the time you're 30. So there's almost more upside in unlearning the bad stuff than learning new stuff. What's a bad thing you unlearned? Organic question. The communication thing that I was talking about earlier stands out as the most important 
realizing how important it is to step down from every single power struggle the moment that it arises has been probably the healthiest, most accelerated pathway that opened up for me in the last two years. It takes a long vision to see that too, especially in business negotiations, but all good things come from letting people sort of have their way while maintaining appropriate boundaries. I think that's the, the balance, the nuanced balance that needs to be included into that statement. How do you um, do that? Intuition develops throughout more pattern recognition of the types of people that are healthy to deal with. Um, just in general, like someone who is operating in a secure, healthy, compassionate way is probably someone who has a higher potential of landing in your very inner circle. If you take that too far, you'll end up passing up on opportunities with people who might not be as balanced, for lack of a better way to put it, like emotionally balanced, but there is still a place in your network for that person. There is a, there is a boundary point where you could place them, where you guys could still have a functional relationship, but that it just doesn't move beyond that point. So I talk a lot about this in some of the networking podcasts on Beyond Poker, if you're more interested in it, but there's a lot of nuances to network boundaries. And I think striking that balance between being someone who is very submissive in terms of, I will not get involved in conflict with you, but also very assertive. You will not push beyond this point because that just becomes overly controlling and abusive. Being able to strike that balance kindly is, is the skill set of a, a powerful communicator. Yeah. And, and it's difficult, especially when somebody's operating uh, from a space where they're not receptive, right? Like the emotion hits them and now they're making sense of the emotion. And the reason they feel this is because you're a fucking asshole mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're, yeah. and you're operating from the perspective of what you're saying is logical and rational and makes sense, which may be true, but doesn't really matter because it's never going to make its way um, to the other person. Understanding how that works mechanically, that people will always interpret you and misinterpret you quite often, no matter how strong your communication is, no matter how balanced your communication is. That is something that made it a lot easier for me to continue to step down from the power struggle. Because if you, if you really take note of what's occurring when you get involved in a power struggle with someone in conflict, it's that you can't accept that they feel this way about it. So you feel a need to defend your argument. Like, no, my argument's fair. My argument's grounded. But now it's just your perspective versus theirs. And at this point, you've been drawn into the distortion that it's worth competing against their perspective. Their perspective is set in stone from many, many biases that have been ingrained in them from other characters that they've met in the past. And now you represent something about somebody they used to know. That's why you're experiencing them projecting onto you in that way. Understanding that mechanically, I feel like is a huge upgrade. Because someone, someone who understands the mechanics of that can naturally evoke empathy in those scenarios instead of feeling defensive. And ties perfectly back into this one tweet that we're analyzing where when you feel confusion 
and seek to cut through the confusion and put it on the other person. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this is actually like what, this is like the truth, right? The capital T truth of the situation. Take responsibility for the confusion in that you don't understand where this person is operating from. And it's your job to understand that and communicate more effectively so that you can reach them through this situation that, that, that you're in, right? It's just about responsibility and taking responsibility for what you don't understand and that emotion, emotional feeling of confusion. Totally. One quick upgrade here for anybody who's in negotiation, business negotiations, probably like top five tips I could give in a situation like you just described, Brad. Never, ever, ever try to convince somebody that your position is fair or that your offer is fair. This is the biggest no-no word that you could use in negotiation because it's basically invalidating their perception of the deal. So you're creating this very oppositional charge in the negotiation when you try to convey that what I'm saying is fair. You think it comes across as fair, but it's actually being interpreted as controlling and aggressive from the other party, especially if they're not already on board with the deal. So let's move on to a couple more tweets and then we can, like I said, I don't know how, how long have we been doing this? How long have we been on? Hour and a half? I don't know. No, not that long. We started recording not even an hour ago, but I have another hour. So let's just go until we get bored. (laughs) All right. We'll go until we get bored. If you're making a diagnosis about why something's happening without using data, you're probably projecting. Yeah, this is a fun one. And it's deep. I mean, a lot of these tweets are kind of cryptic in the sense that it's in poker as in life and you can connect the dots. Lately, I've been trying to clean that up by like using the Joker poker symbol on stuff that I specifically want people to register. This is poker oriented. So I try to help out with the crypticness because I know it's the one. Have you communicated that? Because I saw all the Jokers and I was like, I don't understand. He just likes pirate flags and Jokers these days, I guess. I don't know. I figure if I put a (laughs) player card next to something, it'll speak to the poker audience a little bit more deliberately. Uh, But this one it has a lot to do with deep level projection. Like what I was just saying about if somebody gets triggered with you and you're not necessarily doing anything uh, that you feel is unfair or uh, wrong for lack of a better way of putting it, it's likely that you have fallen into a category of behavior that mirrors an overly dominant figure of their past, an overly dominant character of their past. You just did something that reminds them of that. Now you're experiencing that projection. So when I speak about how projection occurs when you don't use data, we can look at that through the poker landscape, and we already have, where it's like you're carrying a lot of pre-existing biases forward that have never been challenged by population analysis around how the pool behaves. If you don't challenge that, you will continue to act on that projection. It's a projection because it's not real. It doesn't map to reality. It's actually just a figment of your imagination, a relic of the past. If you take that into the interpersonal arena, like real life, people who believe that something is occurring, again, going back to the Airbnb landlord situation or any situation where somebody immediately uh, defaults towards thinking they're being manipulated or deceived, that is very often just a projection of something that occurred to them in the past. Selection bias. 
occurs everywhere in real life. And this is why another tweet that I said, like if, if kindergarten just taught selection bias, the world would be instantly become a better place in one generation. And See this what, with black what is lives. selection bias? I'll give an example, perhaps a jarring one. If you're someone who didn't understand the degree of selection bias that was driving Black Lives Matter, you probably had an irrational position while that was all going on. Should cops be kinder? Yes. Is there also massive selection bias in terms of how many black men were murdered proportionally? Absolutely. One of the things that you can just use to understand this is like picture a world where every single cop has a body cam. And now picture every single event where a person of color is abused by a cop being recorded. And now picture all of those going viral, even if there's maybe just a hundred of them. Map that across the entire population. And you're going to see some pretty exaggerated conclusions being drawn about how much abuse is actually occurring, proportionally speaking. So, yeah, there's a podcast that Sam Harris did on this exact topic and looking at the data and the situation. And I mean, it, it became such a firestorm that you couldn't really, even if you wanted to do research and think about it rationally, you couldn't really express. <laughs> I mean, it was a, a real struggle to express any rational thoughts publicly because you're just you're just going to get destroyed by society at large or the population at large. It's very hard to make grounded arguments against a scientifically rooted position that exposes selection bias. I mean, you're just going to get laughed out of the room at that point. If you don't want to acknowledge the severity of selection bias in some of these models that are creating so much commotion in the world, it's like, I don't even know how we can have a conversation until we're on the same page and, and we both understand how easy it is to be fooled by selection bias. And the media is so good at manipulating it that it, it just becomes even harder to stay, to stay in front of it. Sure. It, it's a, a while ago, a friend of mine, um, successful software developer in Silicon Valley, uh, we were watching a movie and it had a scene with Yemen and the population was like going crazy. It was some kind of war movie. I can't remember what it was, but they were talking about Yemen and they were like, Yemen, violent place, very violent mm -hmm. place. And my friend just kind of leaned over and he's like, I've been to Yemen. It's very wealthy and not very violent at all. And it exposes how we see snippets of violence and then make a sweeping conclusion about some geographic right. area of the world when like the same exact thing can obviously happen to us, right? Like I live a mile from CNN and Mercedes-Benz stadium where a cop car was set on fire and there were riots and it was like absolutely bonkers for like 45 seconds, right? And then broadcast it everywhere. And people are like, wow, were you involved in that? That was crazy. Like, did you see, I'm like, no, I live a mile away and it never even entered my sphere. Yeah. Like it, it was something that happened for a few minutes and then was portrayed as if it was just happening round the clock for a month straight. Maybe the hardest thing to become 
aware of or to accept is even though you've been alive for 20, 30, 40, 60 years, the sample of things that you've actually directly experienced is very, very limited relative to what's really occurring worldwide. So like, if you can just get behind that for a minute or just imagine that even though it feels like you have a very well-rounded perspective, so much of your framework of reality has been informed by very narrow sample size. And then because the mind is not really good at thinking gradiently, it just crystallizes into this very rigid conclusion around, oh, that's the way this part of the world works. Take that into the poker arena and you can see how a lot of these biases form. Like you might've gotten hero called in a spot that is overfolded substantially by the pool. And because you're traumatized by the fact that that one guy called you with ace high in that spot, you convince yourself that you shouldn't be bluffing in that spot anymore. And now you're the victim of selection bias. Yeah. Not then you're toast. There's a philosopher who I can't remember the exact quote and I'm likely to butcher it, but basically it was think about any war that's ever gone down all the stories, all the media, um, the way that the story is portrayed and recognize that none of that is real. And it's through the lens of the reporter. It's through the lens of the editors. Um, it's through one person's lens. And the reality is that there are many stories that are never told that are just, you know, you know, from the people that experience the same thing and people on one street or in one city may have a totally different experience than somebody less than a mile away. And I mean, we just never gain awareness of all these different stories. Um, so yeah, I guess that's where, where I'll end unless you have anything else to add on that. No, that feels complete to me. I just, this was definitely one of those cryptic types of tweets that definitely applies to both poker and life and specifically like this interpersonal dimension of selection bias, how we project onto people, even though they're not deserving of that judgment. It's the, the main thing that has sort of come up side by side with my skill set as a poker player, as I sort of like, you know, expand away from poker, I've realized this is the dimension of, of life. That's really interesting to me. And it's what I was doing in poker all along, just trying to bucket people, profile people, read information accurately. You take that into the inter interpersonal networking dimension of life. And it's like, it's almost infinitely more interesting. Well, yeah, because life is much more complex than poker. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Okay. So I have something that I tweeted after listening to an episode of Philosophize This that got a total of four likes. So it was very well received in the Twitter verse. Um, it was uh, outsourcing your subjective map of reality is very tricky. And I wanted to kind of distill that. But by outsourcing your subjective map of reality, what I mean is, you know, what, what you said of we accept some truths or rules to life and then we apply them. Like I think religion is a good example of like, it is a subjective map of reality that people follow and they give up their own ability to make their own subjective map of reality. They just accept it as truth. And I think that like, as I get older, the, the agreements with myself that I'm breaking all stem from maps of reality that were 
forced upon me or that I accepted when I didn't know any better. And then I kind of grow out of and recognize like, wow, that doesn't really make a lot of sense anymore. I need to upgrade this opinion or really think about my position here. Um, so just, I guess, <laughs> any thoughts on subjective maps of reality and how they influence the perspective in which we go through life and sure. both play cards? Sure. Well, let's use a recent metaphor because Pat, I think, called me out for um, originally when the whole vaccine thing started, I had in his position kind of like a, a nefarious perspective on vaccination. Basically, the way I was looking at it was uh, there's clearly a financial agenda going on here that's driving the narrative. I still believe that strongly. But at the time, there was also like some question marks in my head as to like the whole conspiracy aspect of this. You know, is this driving us into like this new draconian era? Is this the first step? I would say when everything began, I had a hard time placing the probability of like a draconian conspiracy. In my head at the time, I remember saying, I think it's like low double digits that that could be what's occurring. That was the bias that was pressed out as things went on was I started to, to realize that I had overestimated that number significantly, very, very significantly, which became easier to do as time went on. But I also have tweeted about this, that like the people who still think that there's something dangerous, chemically dangerous about the vax, like that it's being used to like insert nano worms into us and that we're going to be basically controlled robotically with stuff like that, or that it's just poison. This is very ungrounded. There's no evidence for this. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, if you do think you found evidence, you're probably the victim of selection bias. And having worked through the iterations of that bias, what I came to realize is that most of the people who were vehemently against the vaccine for the reason that it is either the product of a conspiracy or that it is poison are people who are carrying forward a unresolved trauma from the past where they have been deceived in a similar position by someone who's exerting control. You need to do this. Like realize what that sounds like to the, to the childhood mind. You need to get this vaccine now. It will mimic every single overly controlling or overly dominant character from your past, many of which probably did deceive you when you felt that emotion. And so you project that unfairly onto a situation that very much could have a financial agenda behind it, very much could be handled with uh, below par communication skills, which I think is the major problem with how the vaccine was unrolled. It's just too aggressive. The communication behind it is triggering all of these people who have unresolved issues with overly controlling figures. But the people who are resistant that are saying that this immediately means there's a conspiracy going on and that the vaccine is poison, that's jumping to a major conclusion. And that conclusion is informed by a projection. I was susceptible to this too. And that's why I was assigning a, a much higher probability initially to the fact that there's just some sort of severe foul play going on. My position has relaxed since then, um, where I do believe that there's some significant financial agendas. I believe the communication is really poor 
in trying to help people understand the incentives behind the vax. I also understand the anti-vax position because I was unvaccinated until I had enough incentive. I just wanted to play the World Series, so I did it. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of nuance here. But overall, the people who I've seen that are vehemently against vaccination don't have scientifically grounded opinions. They're operating from unresolved emotional biases that cause them to inflate the actual risk involved. I had some hesitation in another tweet that I made, and it was really after lots of reflection on you know the whole anti-vax explosion on Twitter. And what I realized was people that are anti-vax, passionately anti-vax, let's label it, are also operating from a perspective of care, right? They're trying to help. That's, that's what they're trying to do by um, taking their stance, sharing the information that they're investing their energy and looking at. And I just think it's a better stance to recognize like, oh, this person isn't like actively trying to kill everyone. They're mm -hmm. not like trying to harm people. They're actually coming from a place of care and, you know, demonizing them, which I, I think that we should push back uh, as it relates to like looking at the data and trying to look at things objectively. But the demonization, I don't think does anybody any good. It just hurts the situation. It creates polarization right. and that just doesn't lead to a good outcome. That goes for both sides too. I mean, both sides are making the mistake of doing that. One of the things that I think is the most nuanced and most misunderstood around that polarization. And I talked to Pat a lot about this um, because he's very firmly scientific. If you haven't noticed, <laughs> I, have. I, I try to understand why he has such a hard time accepting an argument from someone who might be in an anti-vax position that says, I just don't prefer to get this vaccination because it's not important enough to me. I don't see I don't see the risk as high enough for me to justify doing this thing that feels like a, you know, invasion of my body or or whatever you classify it as if you're anti-vax. And I was of this camp for a while because I had had COVID. I'm in a demographic that is just probably lowest risk. So for me, you know, I might have had some slight biases around why I didn't want to do it, like a status quo bias. I literally just didn't want to get up and go to the doctor to get it done. It was easier for me to just sit still. That was definitely an aspect of what I was operating from. I was informed to some degree by that bias. But I also understood something that I've sort of tried to reveal to Pat along the way. I think we've sort of met in the middle on this, where when I observed his arguments, Every single one of them rejected anything that had to do with tolerating more risk. So an anti-vaxxer is just like, the risk isn't high enough for me to care about this. I'm going to survive this thing 99.9% you know, of the time or something. The scientist looks at it as, even if we minimize risk by 0.000000001%, we need to do this because it's logically consistent. What the scientist fails to realize through that argument is that his presupposed value judgment, the thing he's putting 
unquestionable value on is that we should be minimizing risk of death. The anti-vaxxer doesn't view it from that point of view. Many, of, many anti-vaxxers, I would say the grounded anti-vaxxers, the ones that aren't just completely off their rocker on conspiracy theories, but like a grounded anti-vaxxer in the most unchallengeable anti-vax position, maybe the only unchallengeable anti-vax position is, I don't care about the additional risk. I'll, I will, I have to say this correctly. I will consider the health of others by remaining in my home, but I will not take on this additional uh, protection because I just don't care about the, the risk. That's a position that's completely outside of the scientific framework because the scientific framework is strictly looking at it through the only logical thing is to minimize risk of death for everyone. This just isn't a, a paradigm that some people subscribe to. It's a completely different paradigm. And the scientist makes the mistake, I would say, of believing that everyone subscribes from a decision-making process of minimizing risk of death to absolute zero. If you miss that, if you fail to acknowledge that, it will have you in a power struggle with somebody who doesn't even operate from your value system. And you guys are wondering why you're not meeting in a logical middle. It's because you have different values. So being able to see that like, you can logically figure something out, but if you're doing it from a paradigm that somebody else doesn't even subscribe to, good luck. Yeah, and we'll tie that back into that original tweet that you had about confusion, right? Both sides are confused that the other person doesn't see it. Um, let's consider where the responsibility might lie in alleviating that confusion, where the disconnect actually is, right? You just got to let people do their own thing, I think. I mean, within reason, vaccinated. I, I think Andrew Barber said it very well when he said a question that he poses is, what piece of information could I introduce to you that changes your opinion? And if the answer is no piece of information, then it's not even a conversation you should have. That's the indicator that you're operating from two different paradigms. It's also usually an indicator that the person that can't have their mind change is probably uh, delusional or just I mean, like unavailable to growth. But if yeah. everybody starts acting like a zombie and people start melting on the sidewalks, my, my opinion might change about the vaccine, right? Like there's, there's information that could be realized that would change right. my opinion substantially. It's just not there for me. Um, sure. we, we mentioned early on about live tells, which it's funny seeing the evolution of Nick Howard moving towards the realm of the intuitive um, because you've been playing live poker. So tell me about tell me about that. You mentioned your brother Pat. He's an anti tellser. <laughs> I don't know the right way to label it. Um, but yeah, tell me tell me about your experience playing live poker. Why you think intuition is something that is trustworthy. I don't know that I would go that far, but yeah, I mean, why a honed intuition, basically why, why data points that you realize while you're playing live poker can be trustworthy. It's probably best to start by saying that I don't feel that somebody should be using intuition until they are firmly scientifically grounded. There's a reason for that. And I think it's just, 
it has to do with the natural progression of human consciousness as it develops. Typically, when a person enters a performance arena, we could even just call life the big performance arena, they're in the early processes of pressing out all of these distorted belief systems that you were talking about before, you know, like subbing out these pillars for better pillars. As that process continues, that person is refining their perceptive lens. Hopefully somewhere along the way, they discover data analysis. They start to understand selection bias. They start to understand how their current belief systems were informed by fairly arbitrary influences from the past. And they start to upgrade this framework that they work from to include more well-rounded, complete perspectives. Once they have arrived at a sufficient threshold in scientifically balancing their paradigm, then I think the ceiling, the next ceiling, is to reincorporate intuition carefully, emphasis on carefully. If you give somebody permission to do that, typically they might run wild with it and start to believe that they're able to see more things than they actually are. You know, they start to believe that they start to, they can start to believe that they're seeing God almost everywhere they look. Magic is to be found left and right. And I'm the one that can detect that. And this is a very attractive spell that can get cast on someone because a lot of people enter into an arena like poker from a preconceived desire to be able to have white magic skills. It's the tweet that I made yesterday, a couple of days before that half the team wants to be Charlie Carroll and the other half doesn't believe that intuition even exists. It's where that came from. What's interesting is there's a clear separation between certain humans of that being a very attractive and uh, what's the right word? Lustful spell to believe mm -hmm. that you have white magic, but on the other side, it's a terrifying thought to some people as well. It's something that is like, you can't trust it. Um, and it ought to be dismissed across the board. And I think, you know, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I, I've, I've come to some, like a strange conclusion that came while I was high. So actually most of my best conclusions come in that state of mind. I think anyway, uh, maybe some of the, some of the worst ones, but I, I don't pay attention to those. Oh, um, I'm all about that. So let's <laughs> hear it. Uh, so basically I realized that like soul reading, when we say soul read, which by the way, is just a great phrasing. Whoever came up with that, I think is like just genius for the language that they use there but it's recognizing that your opponent only has one combination of hands w when they take the specific lines and action and you put all the data points together they only have one thing like that is the essence of a soul read and i've just given myself permission that whenever i genuinely believe that i'm soul reading someone to just act on it mm -hmm. and most of the time it works out well and my read is accurate. But again, it stems from a lot of trust in myself. Um, I just find that like when I trust myself in those spots, it tends to go well. And I think a lot of people, even the highest level players, um, there is a hand that comes to mind that I, I've spoken about before that Jason Kuhn played in a tournament where he had ace queen of diamonds, 
what was like Jack 10 X three bat pot. They were the two chip leaders. He ended up winning the tournament, I believe. And the term is a queen of diamonds. And he had the ace of diamonds and he villain checks, he bets and villain check raise all in. And almost immediately Jason Kuhn was like, what? Like mm-hmm. what? Like what? Like king of diamonds, 10 king of diamonds, Jack, which was the exact hand that villain had. And that was like very fascinating to me that he recognized it instantly and then pulled back and ended up folding anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just very interesting that you nailed the hand and then you still fold, which to me is like, yeah, it just is representative of a very high level thinking player that in that instance didn't trust the soul read because the soul read is, you know, pretty tenuous. It's a very yeah. shaky place to be. Absolutely. There is a, a really neat progression that I think happens as you get better and better in any performance industry, but let's talk poker. The beginning player, the noob, walks into a hand and he's putting his opponent on a single hand. Then you advance and you learn how to put someone on a range and you learn to think probabilistically. They could have this spectrum of things at any given time. That has a high ceiling, and that's the methodology that we train with that I would say most successful coaches in the industry train with. You can't be a good player unless you arrive at that probabilistic capacity for ranging. Start to look at it in terms of he might be slightly over-bluffing in the spot. It's never like he's bluffing every time. Then there's an even higher ceiling, which is not talked about. I think I did read something that Jason Sue wrote. He called it sample of one. First time I really heard this described where the highest paradigm is to then go back once again and recognize just as the beginner entered from that the opponent actually only has one hand in this exact moment. So it's this very weird simplicity on the other side of complexity. That theme was described in Pat's podcast where you end up back at level one, but it's actually level three. You can reincorporate whatever data points are informing you of the soul read, but hopefully you're also doing it in a probabilistic way. And then what does that look like in practice? Well, it looks like having pattern recognition for what someone has looked like in the past when they have shown bluffs. And then the degree to which you can match that up. Uh, My friend... Blake calls this, calls this a concealment strategy. It's one of the things that I pay the most attention to, especially in large pots on the river. Uh, in live play, if you can match someone's concealment strategy, there's literal points of edge to be gained there in bluff catching situations where you now have the opportunity to bluff catch into a concealment strategy that matches up with a pattern of behavior that you've seen that player show a bluff with in the past. The better you can get at that, the more you can incorporate this highest ceiling, this sample of one ceiling back into your decision-making process. So I think it's just interesting that, you know, often people say that like beginners do stuff that really advanced players do. I would say beginners do, and they're often doing them for the wrong reasons, or they don't have a stable decision-making process for them. Not really pattern recognizable to them. There's no refined calibration. You get to a very high level though. And you can incorporate these soul reading type factors, but you're still doing it probabilistically. You're still reeling yourself back in by being like, 
humble enough to say, how confident am I really that what I'm seeing is influencing this player's bluffing frequency in the spot? And so what we arrive at is a, a new spectrum, a new dimension of edge. You said multidimensional earlier at some point. I think that's what this is. Live gives you another dimension of data points entirely that you can factor into your analysis. So you can find some, some calls where you might have otherwise folded or vice versa. Yeah, you, as you gain experience and knowledge and ability, your ability to notice and analyze data points and prioritize data points improves to the point that in some instances against some very specific players, when they take very specific actions, it culminates in, oh, I kind of know what you have here because there's only one type of hand that you play given all of these factors that that are kind of, that we've analyzed. And I mean- Again, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like ripping Jason Kuhn ever. He's actually like him coming on the podcast changed the way that I think about poker just in the hour that we spoke together uh, because he said something that was very impactful. And it was when you understand what poker is, you can play any game well. And that led me down the rabbit hole of asking myself, what the fuck is poker then? Like if that's the, if, if I accept this as the truth, which I do, because obviously he's, um, you know, one of the best players in the world. And then it becomes apparent that I need to understand what's happening in this game and yeah. what is poker. And, and that led me down this six month journey of like, okay, let's distill this game into like, what is actually happening hand to hand and moment to moment. I love that. So what did you come up with? In one sentence, what is poker? Oh, God. I don't know. (laughs) In one sentence, it's what I've... It it has to do with strategy mapping. Like, it's a game of maps. It's a game of equity. I think poker is a game of bets and placing bets and asking yourself, is this a good bet? Is this a bad bet? Um if you want to get into like learning a game sequentially, I think sequentially we start with the first decision in the tree and sort of understand what's happening, right? Like no limit, hundred big blind poker. It's a six bet game. I've never, I don't hear people talk about it being a six bet Mm -hmm. game, but it's a six bet game in a three bet pot preflop. There's three bets left, bet, bet, bet. If there's four bets pre there's two bets left bet jam, right? In a single race pot, there's four bets left. And if you think about poker in that way, like if you raise pre and check behind on the flop, now what you've done is you've eliminated or reduced the probability that more money is going to go in the in the pot, more bets are going to be placed, which effectively means you have a weaker range typically than you otherwise would. How other people sort of interpret this information or act on it is another matter, but like that's fundamental. You three bet pre and you check back the flop. Okay, you're not ready to play this pot for three bets. What does that mean about your range? It means something. Mm. But I mean, just getting into the basics of like, oh, what is 200 big blind poker? Because pots increase exponentially, it's a seven bet game. What does that mean? Like, how does the game turning into a seven bet game affect my strategy? Well, we probably need to have more combos in a lot of spots so that we have available combos. In the seventh bet, we have available bluffs and we have both available value. And like what beginner players mess up is that they play a six bet game with too few combos and a high nice. SPR, which basically leads to them entering situations where they either always call or always fold 
in either situation is catastrophic to them. I love that. It sounds like you're looking at it more from a structural lens than ever before. And that's, that's the thing that interests me most. My definition is still refining itself. I try to get it real tight. Like, what is this thing that we're all doing? Like, essentially, Janda said something to me way back in the day that really shaped the way I think about multi-street games. He gave an extreme example, and I, I feel like often this is the best way to learn about you know, sort of how a game works. He said, imagine a hundred street game where you had like five combos of the nuts or even two combos, one combo of the nuts. You could technically bet your entire range on the first street and be perfectly balanced or not even be bluffing enough. That's really hard to understand until you understand how multi-street games work, how you can continue to bet and drop some bluffs out on every street while remaining balanced. This is an essential component of a, of a dead pot multi-street game. Um, I think it's really important to start to really incorporate these mechanical truths about the structure of the game you're playing. And the one that Pat loves to use is equity thresholds. In any spot, when somebody bets a certain sizing, if they're over a specific threshold with the amount of bluffs that they're using, every single hand in your range becomes a, a profitable call. And that can be very simplifying for a player who hasn't really understood that essential principle of, of pot odds. Simple, sure, if you understand it, but look at how convoluted that can get when you've got so much other noise that you're trying to factor in. Yeah, I mean, you, it's simple to say I'm going to go run a marathon, but harder for me in practice to actually go do it. I think, oh, he, here's some, some more things. I'm just going to drop all the things that I've been learning because you hit on something that like clearly I've, I've thought about. The more combos that you have in your range, the smaller the pot typically should be. The fewer combos you have, the larger the pot ought to be. Um, when you fold, you strengthen your calling range in that spot, which is another just kind of interesting component to like folding. Mm. I fold so that I have fewer combos so that when I call in the future, I have a stronger range that can meet MDF or that can call down because I don't want to overcall um, early streets so that I fold later streets. Something that like solvers is fascinating to me is like solvers, when you input all the strategies and map them against each other, it will not meet MDF on the flop because it, it, because it knows what's going to happen on all turns and rivers, right? If you flip that and say, what happens if I just bet 90% against a villain that's not meeting MDF and then I never put another bet in no matter what the runout is? That's when you start thinking, oh shit, they're just going to be overfolding massively because if the solver knew we were not putting any more bets in the pot, the strategy on the flop would be significantly different, but it doesn't know that because we've input the possibilities, right? Yeah, this is one of the most delicate parts of working with the solvers. You got to be really careful about how you are node locking before you come to certain conclusions. I've seen a lot of messy conclusions get drawn from mistaken locks put on sims. Well, that's another thing. How does a solver work? What's happening within a solver, right? Like, how do we understand this? This is another thing I've invested lots of energy into. And there's a Tactical Tuesday spot where John, the solver wanted John to jam a bottom pair plus a flush draw on the turn, right? And I couldn't make sense of it. 
I was like, why does it want you to jam this hand? Like, I don't understand until I realized, oh, Solver's mapping equities. Solver needs us to have a 25% equity jam here on the turn so that villain can't just overfold versus our jams because that's a very exploitative strategy. And it kind of clicked like, oh, this is what Solver does everywhere. Like it's just, it's mapping out equities. Um, and that was really another sort of thing that, that I've come to understand and learn about poker is that like our hands in lots of places are, are red herrings. What matters most is the equity of our range and how we're playing that equity as a strategy. Um, and then if you break that down, you can use that in pretty much any poker game you play. When you think about it in terms of equity versus equity and how your range you know, wants to utilize that equity. Yeah, there's nothing more satisfying than when you feel like you've really discovered a pattern that holds true in the way that solver behaves. It's hard to do. Like there's there's certain stuff that is consistent throughout the game tree that it that it does where you can be like, I've seen enough examples of this that I can draw a general heuristic that this thing about the game is true. Principally true. And then there's some stuff where we just still don't know. Like well, it doesn't tell us. <laughs> Solver doesn't speak. It doesn't tell us its rationale. Right. That's what I mean. Is like there's stuff that we still have not been able to interpret or that we can't even really approach with interpretation because we know we just don't have enough insight. And those are the, the funniest models to look at. Um, some of the higher level officers on the team are always posting very strange solver findings. So there's always this inconclusiveness around how the game works that can create massive cognitive dissonance if you don't know how to navigate that and put it into perspective with the rest of your edge. That is the real double-edged sword to doing high-level modeling, you're probably going to discover some stuff that really confuses you. And you're also going to keep developing better heuristics and patterns from other stuff that is more coordinated that yeah. can really upgrade your framework. So it's, it's that weird double-edged sword and the people that will get the most benefit out of deliberate high-level modeling are the people who can navigate cognitive dissonance with with courage and with grace. I find it funny when people are like, oh, Solver does this because of X, Y, Z. And it's like, I don't, like, I can't, I don't accept this as truth. Like, it's doing something. It's all rooted in mathematics. And like, if I don't understand it, I just, we just have to say, fuck, I don't get this. It doesn't make sense. And anybody that says that it all makes sense to them, to me, is just full of shit. Like, because there's lots of things that are hard to triangulate as to why it's happening. Yeah, what you're probably picking up on there is that when that person behaves certainly about solver reasoning, it's actually a projection of their own reasoning around the spot applied to solver's thought process, which we know it has none. Right. Which is why it's infinitely hard to interpret unless you actually understand all the components, the structural components of the game. So yeah, don't don't believe anybody who acts certain good principle <laughs> and every high level poker player that i talk to feels the same way like i feel uncertain about 92 percent of the decisions that i make at the poker table and that's the reality is like i all i'm always asking um could i have understood something better did i miss something why is this happening the way that it is and that's just 
how I've always operated. And it just seems to me that the most successful people in poker accept that uncertainty and are willing mm -hmm. to dive deep and be like, yeah, I accept that I don't know what's going on all the time. I mean, look at the Galfond versus Perkins Twitch stream, which was like a great insight into Galfond's mind of like saying, I don't know 200 yeah. times while he's playing heads up against Perkins. I don't know. I think this is it, but I don't really know. I mean, those are the type of people that you want to surround yourself in poker who are okay saying, I don't really know. And that's okay. And like, not the people that have it all figured out all the time. It's an excellent communicational upgrade to very few people understand that oh, this was actually another tweet that I did. I said, it does not make your position less powerful if you express it in a way that is 20% less certain. Poker players, the ones that you're describing, understand how important this is. Because if you act like your decision has, is backed by 100% certainty, you're probably the victim of all of the types of distortions that we've outlined. If you're in a communicational negotiation or even just like, you know, a conversation with someone and you believe that in order to make your position sound strong, powerful, educated, you need to use terminology that is absolute in its intent. That doesn't suggest any type of confusion or uncertainty. What you're actually doing is charging that conversation with a very controlling, aggressive energy, which is actually indicative of insecurity on your behalf. Because now, what I mean, if I'm in a conversation with somebody who's doing that, what I am able to energetically translate that as is this person is very uncomfortable with being uncertain. And they are already uncertain, which is why they need to front as if they're certain. So this person becomes less credible just by their energetic blueprint in this conversation. You start to read things like that. And it's, so, it's such a macro understanding. Some people that might be very abstract, but you get enough reps in, go through enough iterations of communication, and you start to see this thing is true. People who behave in a certain, certain fashion, no, no pun intended, tend to be operating from less grounded positions. Take it to the poker arena now. Somebody bluffs the river after using very seamless, confident timing, but sometimes there's a very compensatory energy behind that timing sequence. And this is subtle. Sometimes that can be real confidence, but other times there's a, some, sort of, some sort of drift in the energy that occurs, some sort of riff, that's the word, where you can tell this is not true confidence. This is, this is compensating for something. What would this be compensating for? Probably the fact that they don't have the hand that they're trying to represent. Okay, but I don't want to have total certainty around my read being true. So I'll assign some sort of gradient frequency for my tell being legitimate. And now I arrive at maybe a different decision point, depending on the confidence of my read. But you see how it's always being filtered and refiltered through confidence intervals. Nothing is ever 100%. I suppose if you had, I suppose if he turns the cookie next to his ear right in front of your face, then you can go ahead and read souls. But yeah, then you know. Um, again, I'm, there's another podcast. I'm just going to keep talking about Sam Harris, but he did a podcast on physical space and how we move through the world and nonverbal communication. I can't remember the exact episode, but it really clicked with me. They, they did this experiment 
where like it, just by looking at hands uh touching going for a beverage you could tell whether they were taking the beverage for like themselves or pouring it for someone else or what their intent was right and there was talking about like how if i describe to you directionally where to go i use my arms to point and gesture and show you like, yeah, go down that road to make a left, right? We use those gestures and symbols. And the conversation was about how using those gestures allows us to more effectively communicate. And human beings oftentimes don't even pay attention to the words you're speaking, but pay more attention to your body language and your gestures. And it just made me realize in the world of poker, how it's a world of nonverbal communication and there are gestures being made that are data points. And when you get really good at interpreting these gestures, you can start to recognize, oh, this, the way that the body language, the way I'm interpreting it, um, historically means that villain is weaker than normal or stronger than normal or whatever it is. It's hard to quantify. It's hard to pin down, but the fact is we communicate non-verbally all the time. It's a part yeah. of humanity. Sensing into the degree of incongruence in someone's behavior is yeah. I think what the real puristic is for. I mean, it, <laughs> let's go back to a tweet that I made that said like the best poker players have significant trust issues. <laughs> That's what it is, right? We're trying to find the, how the action and the mannerisms are incongruent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a paradox, man, because you are trained to distrust once you understand how often people are, quote-unquote, bluffing. And you must also have deep-level trust in your own discernment power to be able to authorize uh, exploits against that. So it's like, it's this weird interplay between... I, I would say that you have a healthy skepticism but i would would use a different word than distrust because they deep good players have deep trust in their reads they have a healthy skepticism for the fact that you're in an environment where people are constantly trying to pull one over on you as in poker is in life yeah it's anyway we could go down the rabbit hole we already have but let's uh how you feel about wrapping up um sending sending the listener to whatever it is you're working on these days beyond poker. I checked the uploads. Have we uploaded recently? You and Wayne? I, I took a little break from beyond poker for the series and just trying to grab my footing with some, some new direction that I want to take that been feeling like I'm kind of in a, definitely a transitional period. So generally I don't really want to put much content out while that's happening. But um, yeah, I would say the thing that's interesting me the most at this point is this new paradigm of trusting intuition. I'm going to be careful with wording here, specifically for guys that are interested in working with uh, detox elite up at the top of you know, like the high stakes level that we have. The program is specifically designed for high stakes competitors who are looking to move to nosebleeds. When I think about the ideal applicant for that program, I think of myself before I went the direction that I did, which was I basically stopped competing at the 1020 level after I had good results. And I decided, I decided to build the detox CFP company. When I really investigated why I took that path, I realized that it was because I didn't really deeply trust 
in my ability to compete at the highest level of modeling data software. It wasn't my skill set. What I always had was a, a ton of grit. And when I was at that level, I had to make this choice, which I think was informed by my subconscious telling me like, you don't have the resources that you need to go to the next level because you're just not good enough at data software, data analytics. And so I went the path that I went. Now I'm thinking about, you know, what type of applicant do I feel is best fit for this? It is the guy that has extreme amounts of grit and already has good success, but really sees value in being able to outsource data research to a competent team. I'd say the most competent team in the industry. So where my heart is at with that project is making that path available because there's that nostalgic relief that I get from that. Like, wow, imagine if that was available when I was coming up five years ago, my whole trajectory might've been different. I could be the best player in the world. Clearly I wouldn't have my company and you know, it's neither here nor there, but it's just interesting. The paths we take because of the resources that are available at the time. So my involvement in that project is to try to help people get in alignment with their highest performing state. That's why I've been doing a lot of research at the felt recently with live play and really getting back into the motion of what, what is the most functional approach for a player to iterate to the proper strategy, a strategy that they know they want to play on paper, but that is very hard to meet when the rubber meets the road because of how, how you need to control your frequencies and have stable decision-making processes over such a large sample. So, so a bit of a long-winded way of saying that I feel as though my biggest skill set right now is to give a player awareness over how to pick an approach that he is in emotional agreement with. Just to break this down simply, you know you want to play X strategy. X strategy includes you being aggressive in these areas of the game tree. Maybe you're going to call too often in these areas and fold too often in these areas. Maybe you want to expand preflop so you can play more pots with fish. Have these nuggets that would form overall a very powerful strategy that maps in the macro. And we could actually show whether or not somebody's hitting that target over large samples. But the real question is how do you get someone to attempt to play that way? My personal opinion at this stage is that the, the best way for them to make their first attempt is to allow them to do it from a state that they are in emotional agreement with. For me, I already described how I do that. I try to pick a number that solver would play a certain hand. And then if I'm trying to marginally exploit that spot with aggression, I'll jack that number up a little bit. I play that game in my head. If I run that for 100,000 hands and I run it through the filters of where I'm supposed to be at, the proven filters of a system that actually performs, and I find I'm way off, well, that I can go back and make adjustments to how I calibrate from moment to moment. I think it's iterations of that. And we're able to help you do that at a pretty fast rate relative to other training content out there. Because I think over 20,000 hands, we can find a lot in your patterns as to what's off and what's on. So you asked me like, you know, where my inspiration is. I know that's kind of a nuanced thing, but I mean, we're at a pretty high iteration in this process. So it has to be nuanced at this point. My passion is in identifying with a player where are you currently in emotional agreement? What version of our strategy are you in emotional agreement with? And how do you feel comfortable applying that in real time? 
he'll give an answer. I'll just agree with whatever he says, as long as it's not super ungrounded, which it won't be if he's already rational and highly winning. Then you go and apply that, come back and say, okay, here's my stats, take a look at them, and we can show you where adjustments need to be made. Basically exposing rapidly where your biases are at a rate that you're in emotional agreement with. Keep coming back to that because I think it's the, the missing piece all along to trying to get people to get on board with data-driven approaches. Do it at a pace that feels kind of comfortable. Always a little bit of discomfort, but do it at a pace that's not you know, ripping your heart out of your ass with every hand that you play. Because that's yeah. what a lot of people try to do. And that's when you see them self-destruct. That's when all of the really destructive biases creep in because, oh, they told me to bluff this spot and I got hero called. So fuck this strategy. That's where a lot of people come from when they, when they self-destruct under a data-driven approach. So yeah, that's my plug, I guess, Brad. Yeah, I, I think one thing that I'll add before we close down, I had Patrick Leonard on the podcast and hilariously, this is more less on the technical side, but more on like the emotional confidence side. What drove him to playing high level was he was in a relationship with a girl and she was like a VIP host of some poker strategy website that basically gave people $50 free rolls um, in order to sign up under them. And they would just like basically earn rake for the company. It was like a rake model. You sign people up, you train them up, they put in volume, you make money that way. And his girlfriend would have these stories about like the crushers who go off for like 15 buy-ins in one morning because they got into a fight with their girlfriend. And he's like, fuck man, I'm scared of these guys. Like he, he got, he, he got awareness of mm the fallibility of people who are absolutely smashing it and realized, fuck, they're just human. Yeah. I can do that. Like, and, and that was what led to him really pressing. He said he, he was happy being like a, you know, 500 NL cash game grinder and didn't really aspire to much more because he built it up to something that it wasn't. But when he gained awareness of that, it changed everything. Literally everything. Like this is probably one of the biggest aha moments for players that go through our program is wait until you see how reachable the level of analysis that you fear in your opponents actually is. Wait until you see how ungrounded many parts of their analysis actually are and how simple it is to replicate a winning approach if you just get on board with certain heuristics. That, that's really the gift that I would love to give to the poker community at large is like to release you from this prison of believing that your opponent knows more than you do. And actually I have one more, one more tweet because you, mm -hmm. you said something, uh, my community, <laughs> my community pointed it out. The, I would gladly forego the next 10 million that you'll rip out of the pools. If the poker community would just wake up out of the nightmare that they call a strategy. Tell me about that. I'm glad you brought this one up, actually. I think this is actually the most misinterpreted tweet of the last year. There's nothing virtuous about that tweet, actually. Where I'm coming from with it is, I will gladly forego the next 10 million that I'll rip out of the poker pool if the poker community would just start to behave in a conscious manner. Because in my mind, 10 years off into the future, 
what I really see coming from the poker industry is a small collective, maybe even a medium-sized collective of very logical, rational thinkers who go off and they solve even bigger problems in the world and have a pretty dramatic impact. I think this industry has the potential to have very large global impact just with their understanding of um, risk tolerance, selection bias, probabilistic thinking. I've said this before that I think it's like all of the ingredients for a very, very clear thinking person. And empathy and understanding in the psychology the e of human beings. The EQ beings. is there too. It's a huge part of it. So in my head, the, this was actually a greedy tweet. People might look at it. I think people did. And they're like, yeah, right, bro. Put your money where your mouth is. But if you would just wake up and start to behave in a more rational way in the model that we're all playing in right now, we could leave poker and do something way bigger and way better and have a collective global impact and make billions, not millions. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to pull out of this industry is you know, the top one to 3% of really, really clear thinkers. And I would love for more people to wake up to clear thinking skill sets so we can leverage the poker industry to a larger platform and do something much more special and much more lucrative. There's nothing virtuous about the tweet. I really am not interested in foregoing $10 million. I'm just much more interested in taking on ventures that make a hundred million. And, you know, this is, this is what I want to do as well. I'm not going to be in poker forever. I have an expiration date and making an impact to humanity at large matters very much to me. And yeah, it's, there's, you know, you may be on poker because of the raw talent in the poker space. And, and it's true. I, I think that the people in the poker space the, at the highest level do have the potential to change the world. Um, they just because uh, of their raw intelligence, their ability to understand psychology, their ability to problem solve. Problem solving is like at the root of it, right? Poker is problem solving. And the world has lots of problems that need to be solved that are way higher priority than poker. Um, and that's just, you know, that's my opinion, but yeah, I, I can see it being, uh, it, everything is greed at the end of the day, right? Like everything's incentivized by, by our own greed. Sometimes, um, I'll be discussing a strategy with somebody and I'll be like, yeah, we should have chosen the smaller sizing on the river. And they're like, ah, oh, I went full greedy. I'm like, no, you didn't. The smaller size is actually what's fully greedy because it makes more money. Right. Um, so yeah, we're always doing things for greed. I would agree that like there are clear financial incentives behind most of the things that we do. And I see a world where there is a way to align in the collective benefit for all and sort of make something out of nothing. That, that's really the, the passion that I, that drives me forward with business is like, and that's why I started up with Wayne with like the whole premise of beyond poker is let's play non-zero sum games now. Now that we've achieved this clear thinking capacity, let's see what we can do to leverage something out of nothing because it's, it's everywhere. I mean, the, the opportunities for that are everywhere, especially once you're working with significant capital leverage. Yeah, there's lots of needs. Lots of needs. Um, anything else you got to say before we shut it down? Where, final question, I guess. You, we mentioned Beyond Poker, but we can close it out with a CTA of where the CBG listener can read your tweets. 
Yeah, follow me on Nick Howard Poker. Poker Detox on Twitter also um, gives a free strategy upgrade every day. And this is like stuff that's directly from our highest level courses. We delete it after three hours though. So it sort of prompts the user to uh, get with it and, and turn notifications on if you want access to it. Just a fun little thing that we do. So on the detox account, half of our tweets are jokes that the executives just come up with along the way from the absurdity of running a, a staking organization. And then the other half are these very real useful strategy upgrades. Other than that, uh, if you're interested in working with us, the only project I'm currently doing on the ground level is the new detox elite. That is for high stakes players who are already winning, who are looking to make the push to 5k NL and outsource their research um, I'm the performance coach in that project, Patrick Howard, my brother, who is the head data analyst and strategy developer for the Detox CFP project, a project that now has over $6 million in profits since he came on board. Um, he's leading that alongside Matt Marinelli, who is Detox CFP's most profitable player of all time. So Pat is data guy. Matt is player coach looking at you know direct hands and giving you his calibrated advice and i'm the performance coach in that program that's basically trying to help you get in emotional agreement with whatever type of approach you're trying to use to map to the statistical suggestions that you're getting from pat and matt i think it's a really nice synergy um, for somebody who's in a spot that they know they have a higher ceiling and they really just understand the value of paying for that outsourced advice other than that, if you're a lower stakes player, check us out on Detox CFP. It's where we're always at. Applications are always open. Yeah, I think that's about it, Brad. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure to talk about nuanced stuff and clear up a little bit of misinterpretation with how I'm perceived. <laughs> yeah, you know how I know this is a good one? Because I, I feel nervous about releasing it. That's that's how I know that, that it's a good one. It's been great having you on, man. And um, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks, man. See ya. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.